Recording a new one. Excited. All right. If you have your Bibles, please open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're studying through the letter to the church at Ephesus. And uh, this morning we will be in verses 15 through 23. I'm just going to pray one more time because honestly I, I need the Lord's strength <laughs> to preach through this passage. God, just we just thank you now for your word. And we thank you now for the power and the promise of your word that it will go out and it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. God, I'm just a vessel and I'm not worthy of this text. And I just pray that as we read it, that you would open our hearts. You would open our eyes. You would allow us to see your glory. You would allow us to see how beautiful your son Jesus Christ is and how valuable he is. I pray that you would speak your words and not my words. You would let me decrease and that you would increase this morning as we read your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it is all too easy for us sometimes, I think, to think of Christianity solely in terms of the work that God has already done in our lives. We often build our churches and we build our Christian ministries around the idea that we need to get people saved. And and that's true, of course, and and that is one of the, the main focuses of our church, is to get people saved, to get people into the kingdom But I think sometimes our culture, our our, our Christian culture has emphasized that so much that we've emphasized it at the expense of what God has saved us to. God has not just saved us from something terrible, but He has also saved us to something glorious. He has saved us to the church. He has brought us into the body of Christ who is Lord of all creation. And so the great danger is that we just do the church thing. We just become... A person who shows up to church on Sunday morning because that's what you do on Sunday morning. So much so that sometimes we often fail to treasure the unique blessings of the church. See, the body of Christ gathered today is a unique, special, spiritual entity that God ordained. This isn't a social club. This isn't a place where we have cool programs. This is a place where we exist to glorify God as the body of Christ. It's something supernatural. There's nothing else like it. So I want us to ask ourselves as we come to this text, do we just see the church as a series of programs, as a series of ministries? Do we just see it as an institution, as a business where we have business meetings and we pragmatically figure out solutions to problems? Or do we see it for what it really is, the glorious body of Christ manifested in the local gathering of believers? And so Paul here in in the text, he encourages the Ephesians not to stop gazing into the face of Christ. Not to stop immersing themselves in the local church. Because here in the local church, you will find the unique blessings of God. The great treasures that the Lord has left for His people. Last week, Jordan came up to the pulpit and he helped us see that salvation is of God. Salvation is of God. It's a work of the Father, it is the work of the Son, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't contribute to our salvation. God has done it all. God accomplished our salvation. And as we study that, it, it, it's one sentence in the Greek from verses 3 to 14. Just one great outpouring of praise to God for His salvation. And in those verses we learn that He predestined us before the foundation of the world, according to verse 4. He adopts us unilaterally as His children, according to verse 5. 
And then He actually redeemed us in Christ through the cross, according to verse 7. And He preserves us through the Spirit to His glory, in verses 13 and 14. And now, the text we're going to study is also a single sentence from verses 15 to 21 in the Greek. So Paul just kind of has this long, rambling sentence where he probably should have put a few periods in there. You ever read Facebook comments or YouTube comments and people will just, they don't even know how to do a paragraph, you know, they'll just do that giant wall of text and you can't even figure out what they're saying. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. My son Sam, when I, he's, a, he's a chatterbox. And when I get home from work and he starts telling me about his day, he'll start telling me about how he was playing Minecraft and he got attacked by, by an enemy in Minecraft. And the next thing I know, he's talking about, oh, and then I ate Cheetos and then, and then I did this and then, and then I was uh, playing baseball and I just can't even follow the line of thought because he just jumps from one thing to another to another. Well, that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's so excited about the salvation that God has brought in our lives. He just kind of pours out his heart. He pours out his heart about the salvation that God has brought us. And now his attention turns more fully to the subject of the letter, which is the great mystery of the church. The great mystery of the church. And what he tells us here is that because God has given his hope and His power unto His chosen people, the church, we must not ever neglect the glories of the church. So let us now look at the passage, starting in verse 15, and we'll end partway through verse 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. And we'll stop right there. We see here that Paul give, gives thanks to God and prays for the people of God because of the salvation of God. Based on uh, that great description of God's salvation in verses 1 through 14, using that as a foundation, Paul prays for the people and he says, I pray that you would grow in your love of Christ. I pray that your salvation would not just end the moment you believe. I pray that your salvation would not simply be a decision you made at some point in time, but now that you would continue to grow in faith and in love. His prayer specifically is that their eyes would be opened, that God would, through the Spirit, give them knowledge of Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we're in the middle of a little bit of a transition. We're kind of starting a new church here in this, in this old building. We've got a big old building and we've got, we've got a new small church meeting in here. So as we go through this time of transition, um, what, what I want us to do is I want us to see that our church is not founded on programs. It's not founded on, on any sort of business plan, any sort of human vision, any sort of an institution it's not founded on pragmatism or us being really clever and being able to solve problems uh, on our own. Our church is founded on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit opening our eyes day by day to see His glory and to see how valuable Jesus Christ is and to see what kind of treasures He has already given us. And that's going to be a recurring theme throughout this passage. We're going to look at the treasures that God has given to His people, that God has given to His church. Now, I don't want you to think of this as something that you can strive for, something that, if you're a super-Christian, you can attain these things as we look at these different treasures, these different riches that Christ has given to His church. These are things that you already have if you're a believer in here this morning. If you're a believer in here this morning, you have the riches and you have the treasures of Christ in His church as we gather here this morning. 
You have those blessings. And, and what Paul's prayer is, is not that they would gain those treasures because they already have them. His prayer is that they would see the treasures that they already have. See, our reliance on God does not end the moment we are saved. Our reliance on God begins the moment we are saved. Our reliance on God begins the moment we, we start believing and we step out in faith and we follow Him. So Paul prays. Paul prays that their eyes would be enlightened. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Have you ever prayed this prayer for yourself? God, I pray that you would show me how valuable you are. Because sometimes I value things that are not glorifying to God. Sometimes I spend my time on things that are not glorifying to God. And there's a heart issue there that I don't see how valuable Christ is. And I know if I could just see a small percentage of how valuable Christ is, how valuable His church is, and the glories that He's given us, these things would fade away. And I would turn away from them. Because, because of how glorious Christ is. And I prayed for you this week. I prayed for you. I prayed, to, whether you're a church member, you're a visitor, I prayed for all of you. I said, God, please open their eyes. God, please open my eyes to just see a small fraction of how glorious these treasures that you have left for us are. So Paul prays for his people. Look with me in God's word and we will see what the treasures of Christ that you and I already have if we're Christians, if we're members of a church, if we're members of a local church, these are treasures that we have. These are treasures that we already have. So let's look and see. Look now at the middle part of verse 18. It says this. What is the hope to which he has called you? What is the hope to which he has called you? So our first point, the first treasure, we're going to look at three treasures this morning. The first treasure, God has called the church to an eternal hope, to an eternal hope. Now this hope is not a temporary hope. It's not contingent upon our situation. The word hope gets thrown out a lot in the secular world. In the pagan world, we hear the word hope used. And what people do is they'll use it as like, I, I really hope that I win the lottery. You know, the, the odds are one in uh, billions, but you know what? This is the winning ticket right here. I really hope that I win. And so we use it like there's a really small chance, right, that something's going to happen. And we just really hope that it's going to happen. That's not the kind of hope that you and I have in the church this morning. The treasure that Christ has given His church is an eternal, unchanging hope that is not contingent. It is not built upon the foundation of our situation. It's not built upon how many people show up to church. It's not built on how, how well we run our men's ministry or our women's ministry. It's not built on how smoothly the service goes. It's not built on, on our, our stage lighting or any of these little pragmatical concerns that we need to do. It's built on God. It's built on God. It is the hope of the person who has already been redeemed that one day we will be completely and fully redeemed. It's the resurrection hope of the believer as we gaze upon a resurrected Christ. It's not affected by persecution or suffering. Just as Christ's hope in His future glorification was not affected as He stepped each step toward the cross. So we follow our Savior and suffering and persecution don't affect this hope. So let's, let, let's hold up this, this treasure. Let me hold up this treasure for you. And if you've seen a diamond and you turn a diamond around, you see all the different facets, right? You see all the different, the different uh, beautiful parts of that diamond. You see, you see it hit, the light hit it in a new way. And so I hope as we look at this, at this eternal hope, that we would be able to kind of look at it from a few different angles. So one thing that struck me here as I read this passage this week in verse 18 is that the hope has its origin in God's calling. In God's calling. 
How empty and how wretched is the hope of the church that trusts in its own vision and not the sure calling of the Lord. How awful would it be to spend so many years toiling and, real, and then realize we, we, we've been toiling towards the, the vision of a man. We've been building our whole church upon a, upon a pragmatic approach to solving problems instead of on the sure foundation of God's calling. The hope that the true Christian has is true and it is sure for it is the hope of the Lord's own calling. And just as the hope is eternal and the hope is unchanging, so the calling is effective on our lives. Look at Romans 8.30. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'll read it. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We call this passage the golden chain of redemption in the Bible. And what Paul does is he lines up all these aspects of our salvation so we can compare them to each other. We see how they're comparable. If our election in Christ before the foundation of the world is a sure thing, if our justification in Christ is a sure thing, if our glorification with Christ in eternity is a sure thing, then why not our calling? Our calling is a sure thing. We often think of the calling as a general call to salvation. Right? And there is the aspect of the general call. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that you and I are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are called to go into the world and call people to hear God's message, to hear the gospel and believe, and to join the kingdom of God. That, that, that's a great truth, that, that we have this general calling of salvation. Okay? That, 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 that's a true thing. We have the general calling. And yet, when God purposes to save someone, when it is God's doing, He does so with an effectual call on the heart of the person. And He allows them to see their great need for a Savior. That's why I don't depend on my own skill. All right? Sometimes I stutter, sometimes I'm not a very good speaker. And you know what? I don't depend on that skill. I don't, I don't rest on that. You know what I rest on? It, the fact that the Holy Spirit will go into, into your hearts and He will save those whom He has purposed to save. So the calling is God's calling. We have a hope in God's calling. Another way we can look at the hope of this calling is that, what does it say? We are the object, right? We are the object of the calling. We're not the ones doing the calling. And, and, and that's a comfort to me, that God is the one that accomplishes this. Just as we look at verses 3 through 14, and we see that salvation is of God, so now he says your call, the call in your life, the call in your church, that is God's power. That is God's doing. And we are now the people of God, called out to be holy, called out to be set apart in a special way to the praise of His glorious grace. So our hope is sure and eternal. It is effectually planted in our hearts by God's sovereign act of salvation and calling. And it finds its source in God and not in ourselves. What a great treasure of the church. We have the hope of God implanted in us and it is a sure thing upon which we can stand. That's the first treasure of the church. Now let's dig deeper and see what's another treasure of the church that we already have. Number two, God chose the church. God chose the church as His inheritance. Look at the second part of verse 18. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? I can't, I can't preach on this verse even a fraction of the glory that is, that is present here. Verse 18. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? I read this text. I reread this text. I studied this text. And, and I, I'm not worthy of this text. 
The full mystery of, of what is here eludes me and will continue to elude me until I, I am one with Christ in, in, in eternity. But hopefully we can shed a little bit of light on what's going on here. It, maybe this will help us understand. Um, my, my grandmother died six months ago. And of course, when somebody dies, what happens? All the family comes and, and we have to do the, the sad but necessary task of starting to look through her things, right? Look through her goods, look, look at the will, look at the paperwork, figure out who gets what portion, right? We go through And if anybody's had family die, this happens. We go through and we, and we divide up the inheritance. So now picture, now picture God in his triune glory, enjoying himself, enjoying his own glory for all eternity, and he decides for his own glory he's going to create the heavens and the earth. He looks out over the height and breadth of all time, space, history, everything from the foundation of the earth till creation's final days as it groans for its redemption and is finally satisfied. He looks out over everything that he created, seen and unseen, all powers and all authorities and all dominions, and he selects for himself an inheritance. He chooses something to keep and to enjoy forever. He doesn't choose the mountains covered in their glittering snow. He doesn't choose the oceans and the splendors of their depths. He doesn't choose to inherit the stars. If I was God, I, I would probably choose something like that. He doesn't look out and he doesn't choose riches and he doesn't choose money and he doesn't choose all these awesome things that he has created. What does he choose to preserve as the world is dying? He chooses a people. He chooses a people. He chooses you and me as believers in Christ. And the very thought of this just knocks me over. That God would look out over everything that He created. All the beautiful and terrifying works that He created. All of which reflect His great glory in nature. And He chooses His people as His inheritance that He will enjoy forever. So take it a step further. God looks out. He chooses not, not the beautiful things of the earth, but He chooses you and me. But what's even more amazing is that He looked out knowing that he would have to redeem you and me, knowing that in order to, to bring this inheritance into eternity, he would have to redeem us because we were going to be fallen, because we were going to choose sin over God. The father knew this inheritance would cost the life of his son. The son knew it would cost his own life. It was not as if they, they chose us as an inheritance and then were suddenly surprised. Oh no, we're going to have to save him now. They looked, he looked out over all creation. And he decided to redeem me and you as his inheritance. He still chose to inherit us, the church. Why did he do this? Why did he choose me and you? We, 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 may not, we may never fully know. We may never fully understand why he chose me and you. Okay, but we get a hint of it in, in the verses 3 through 14. Where he says over and over again, To the praise of his glory. If you're the kind that likes to underline in your Bible, look through verses 3 to 14 and just underline every time it says that phrase. To the praise of His glory, God, in His all-knowing, all-powerful greatness, decided that He would get the most glory if He decided to redeem for Himself a people as His inheritance. A people of His own possession. Christian, this morning, you are His inheritance. He has brought you this far and He will carry you into eternity. So what's the practical application? Is this just theology that you might read in a dusty book somewhere? Or is this something that can have a practical effect on your life today as a Christian? For me, it is a great comfort to know that I am His inheritance. If I were to inherit a million dollars, if I were to go 
uh, go to pick up my inheritance from a dead relative and they gave me a briefcase and it had millions of dollars in it? Do you know what I would do? I would keep that thing so stinking safe. I would put it in, inside a safe, inside another safe, and I would make sure that it got where it was supposed to go, where it could be safe. I would make sure it got safely into the bank. I would make sure it was invested properly. God and His wisdom, you know what He does with His inheritance being you? He makes sure that we are preserved, that He will carry us into eternity. And that is a great comfort for me. That is a great comfort for me. Far be it from God to predestine us, to purpose to save us from the beginning of, of time, and then to leave us in our sins and our failures. God will carry you into eternity, for you are His prized possession. You are His inheritance. Not because there's any inherent worth within yourself, but because of God's love, because of God's mercy and His glory reflected in your life as we're transformed more and more into the image of His Son. If God chose us for His inheritance, if He effectually called us to an eternal hope, and He promises to carry us on into eternity, you know what that does for me? That means I want to present myself as a pure inheritance for Christ at the end of all things. I'm now reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27, later on in the same book. Paul says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That's Christ receiving his inheritance without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And this is the great day for which we long when we are presented holy and pure before Christ who gave so much that he might purchase his inheritance. And so we have as a treasure of the church our eternal hope. We have as the treasure of the church that we are being preserved as the inheritance for Jesus Christ. And this will be the final treasure we'll look at in the few minutes we have left this morning. God infuses the church with his limitless power. God infuses the church with his limitless power. Not only does he give us an eternal hope, not only does he select us and cultivate us to become his inheritance, to grow into his pure inheritance presented to him at the end of all things, but he also infuses the church with his limitless power. If you want to follow along, we are now back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Here's the third thing. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Again, I stand here at the foothills of this mountainous text we are about to climb together, and I just feel completely inadequate. I feel like I'm standing at the, the, the foot of this mountain of this text, and I don't even have hiking boots on. I don't have any way to, to, to tread on this text. It, it's so glorious, I can't even describe it. But we have to try... It, if the final priceless treasure that Paul prays the church at Ephesus would see and savor is the power of Christ at work among them, then it's our duty to dig here. Let's see what facets of this power we can comprehend and we can actually begin to utilize on a day-to-day -day basis in our church and in our spiritual lives. Let us see how much power God exercises on behalf of those who believe and let us stand 
amazed at our Savior. Look again at verses 19 and 20. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power of God that is at work in you, that is available to you today as a church, as a believer in Christ, as a member of Christ's body, the power that is available to you is a resurrection power. And, and, and when I say that, I mean a couple different things. I mean, God's power not only can raise the dead, not only does it have the power to raise the dead, but it does raise the dead. On a daily basis, God raises the dead. We know historically God raised up His Son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. In the great act that would begin Christianity and provide the foundation for the church, He raised Christ up from the, from the dead. But also He is still in the business of raising people from the dead in the church today. Jump ahead to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And I think Jordan's preaching on this text next week, so I don't want to step on your toes too much. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God's power is capable of raising not only the dead physical form, but also our dead spiritual selves. And He is constantly in the business of doing so. And you know what I love about that analogy that He uses, that, that, that imagery that He uses? Can a dead person contribute to being raised from the dead? No. It's the work of the person who is raising him from the dead. That, that make, means we, we give all glory of our salvation to God and to Christ who raised us from the dead. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 8, 11 also echoes this great truth. And Paul there writes this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the power of God is a resurrection power. There are infinitely more facets to this power. We'll never comprehend this power. We're looking at the very tiny tip of the iceberg of the infinite power of God. But we'll have time to look at one or two more aspects of, of the power of God. Look at verses 20 through 22 there. Power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Not only did God raise Christ from the dead, but he glorified his son Jesus. And he placed everything under the feet of Jesus. Therefore the Lord that we serve has full authoritative power over all the earth. The practical effects this has on our way of living and thinking should be revolutionary. When we suffer... When a family member dies, when there is strife in the church, when we need God's guidance and wisdom, stop and remember, Christ is the Lord of all creation. He has ordained this moment from eternity past that He would gain the glory from it, that we would hope in Him, and that we would be purified as His inheritance. The language here, the language that Paul uses, would have been particularly powerful for the church at Ephesus who were immersed in the midst of a pagan culture with temples to false gods, everybody trying to claim a little bit of power over their lives. You need to do this in order to please God. You need to believe in this God. You need to sacrifice this way in order to please God. People trying to claim power over them. Man-made religion, self-centered greed, superstition, and legalism 
Everyone was trying to claim a little bit of power over the people in the church at Ephesus. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like our culture today. But in the midst of such chaos and confusion, Christ, Lord over all, His foot at the neck of the world's rulers. Christian, fear not, Jesus is Lord. Don't worry about who the next president will be. Don't worry about where our country is headed as we face an environment that is increasingly hostile towards our beliefs. It doesn't matter. Politicians are children playing at games when you compare them with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not one molecule moves without His permission. So take comfort and trust Him, church. Not only is His power in the business of resurrecting people. Not only is His power total and complete, but this is, we're at the summit of the text now. This is the the ground that we don't deserve to tread upon, but His power is in fact available to you today, church. Verse 22, God gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Think that this takes, this takes the power of Christ that we just read about and it takes it out, out of the theoretical realm and it places it in the practical realm. The, this power we read about is not something we read in a textbook. It's available to you and to me today as members of the body of Christ. All that power, power that could crush you, power that would destroy the universe if Christ took his t- attention off s- sustaining the existence of the universe for just a millisecond. The world would implode. The universe would implode if Christ stopped sustaining it. Did you know that? Christ sustains the universe by His own will. Let's stand in awe of that power. And all that power resides in your head pastor, Jesus Christ. We are not gathered here today because I have a strong vision for this church or the other pastor or deacons have a strong vision for the church or because we have any inherent worth in terms of our abilities or because God needs us. God doesn't sit there and pine for us and say, I really wish we'd get somebody who could play the drum on, on stage. We really need that. That's what I need in order to advance my kingdom. I really need a better speaker to, to come to this church to, so we can start to grow this, this new church that I've planted here. God doesn't pine for that. God has all power and authority. And we are just so blessed to have been chosen as His inheritance, not because we're worthy, but because He is great, and He is good, and He is loving. This power is available to you today in the church. It is not for super-Christians. It's not for the ultra-spiritual. Christ's complete and total resurrection power is exercised on your behalf on a daily basis if you're a believer. Christ's power is exercised on your behalf. In your moment of temptation, Christ's power. In our church's moments of weakness, Christ's power. When your marriage seems to be falling apart, when your burdens at work or at, at school are just too heavy, Christ's power. And this power, this grace that brought you this far will carry you unto redemption. It will get you to the point where you can fall down at the throne of God when this world has passed away and you can cry holy, holy, holy at His feet because He rules all and He ordains all to the praise of His glory. Chuck Spurgeon is a far more eloquent man than I. and He preached this. I see the Lord Jesus entering the pearly gates and climbing to His throne. There he sits, and no one can bring him down. 
And you too, believing in Jesus, shall have the same power to tread down all your foes, your sins, your temptations, till you shall rise and sit where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. So Christian, I pray that your eyes would be opened to the hope of His calling, to the full meaning of what it means to become and to cultivate Christ's inheritance that He selected within us, and to the full resurrection power that's available to you today. These are the glories of the church. These are the treasures that we have. These are the mysterious riches that God has granted to us to the praise of His glory. So what? What do we do because of this? What do we do because of this? Do we just leave this in, on a theology textbook somewhere? No. Because we have a Lord that is all-powerful, we do not shrink back, but we can go forward boldly as a church to establish Christ's dominion over all as the kingdom of God advances. It's not my ability or skill. It's not your ability or skill. It is the riches that God has given us. One of the ways that we remember the riches is, uh, is through the Lord's Supper, is through communion. And I'm going to ask Jordan to come up now and, and lead us to the Lord's table as I, uh, as I go play. Let, let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the riches that you have given us as a church. I pray these would not be theoretical riches, but they would be practical riches for us to treasure as we gaze into the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you have done for us. And thank you that you promised not to leave us in our sins but that you will carry us into glorification someday. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.